Good morning. Our first reading from scripture today is going to be from the prophet Jeremiah, chapters 32, verse 1 to 3a, verse 6 to 7, and verse 9 to 15. Please listen along as the Spirit of God speaks through our church. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King of Zedekiah of Judea, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, at the time the army of the king of Babylon was besieged at Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judea, where King Zedekiah of Judea had confined him. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hanmel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, But my field that is at Anoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And I bought the field at enough from my cousin Hamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shelks of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms of conditions and then open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Brach son, Neil son of Messiah, in the presence of my cousin Hamel, in the presence of witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and the presence of all Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence, I charged Barach, saying, Thus the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthware jar, in order that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of Luke, the 16th chapter verses 19 to 31, which is page 97 of your New Testament, or on the screen if you are reading along at home, I'm told. Let us listen again for a word from God. There was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come by and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham! Have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like all manner of evil things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. 
Besides all this, between us, you and us, there is a great chasm has been fixed. So that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so. And no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then, Father, I, I beg you, send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them so that they may not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, they do not listen to Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The word of the Lord. Little did Brian know when he started uh, with his brother David coming to the church a couple of months ago uh, that he'd get the worst, hardest Old Testament reading there possibly is. Uh, I didn't want any part of that, so thank you, Brian and David. Uh, Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning, O God, on your word to us in Scripture be acceptable in your sight, but life-giving to us. And then, as your people, may your words and word be life-giving as it moves through us to a world in need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Has someone ever told you something, or have you ever heard a story that immediately changed your life? When I was, uh, I remember when I was working in a law firm uh, with a bunch of other recent college graduates, when it didn't quite change my life, but when someone said, there's Danish in the conference room, that was a good news. You know, that really changed my life for at least for a few minutes, and I would sprint in there to get hold of it. What kind of story, though, would really change your life, the direction that you are going in? What set of words could do something like that? A parable is a story. It's a particular kind of literary form found almost exclusively in the Gospels of the Christian New Testament. But a parable is a story, and there's a parable that we're reading today in our second reading that actually changed at least one person's life uh, for, uh, in, in radical ways. This man had three doctoral degrees, one in medicine, one in theology, and one in philosophy, and was a leading uh, world uh, concert pianist in the world. Uh, he had achieved the highest levels of, of civilized accomplishment and education and, as a result, wealth. But when he heard this parable, this man chucked it all, left it all behind, and moved to a very remote section of Africa where he spent the rest of his life, a place where there were no pianos or organs to play, no audiences to hear and applaud, no one to read his books, no beds, no cups of tea, no congratulations. What parable could so intensely motivate someone like that to 
changed their life immediately. That man was a very famous man called Albert Schweitzer. And as I said, the single parable that so radically altered his life was the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, which we read today from Luke's Gospel. By the way, this is probably not the Lazarus who appears in the Gospel of John, Jesus' very close friend who was raised from the dead. But the rich man in this story and this Lazarus, as I mentioned to the children, were neighbors. They saw each other every day. That's what the text tells us. And the best way to read the Bible is to take a look at what it says. People don't always do that, by the way. Um, so these people were, these two guys were extremely close neighbors. They were not close, but they did see each other every day. Every day, Lazarus lay at the main gate of the rich man's house. The rich man here has a name, by the way. I don't know if any of you know his name. It's sort of been attached to him over the last 2,000 years. As I said earlier, the rich man's name is Dives. It's a Latin word, and it's a word that has become, you know, attached to him. It's his character's name. It's not in the gospel, but we call him Dives because, you know, if you think about it, a lot of the unnamed characters in the gospel or in the Bible actually have names. You just have to kind of put two and two together. Lot's wife, for example, who knows her name? Any Bible nerds in here? Well, you know what happened with Lot's wife, right? They were, the destruction of Sodom was happening, and uh, after all this debate between Abram and, and, and God, now this, the fire was raining down on the city, and God said to Abram and his brother Lot and Lot's wife, get out of there, run, but don't look back. And Lot's wife looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. So what's her name? Pilar. That's a joke. We have no idea. All right. Anyway, Dives and the rich man in this parable, uh, Dives, who is the rich man in this parable, is someone all of us will easily recognize, especially those of us who've lived in the last maybe 50, 60 years on this earth, in this world. This guy is a me kind of guy, a me kind of person. And by that I mean Dives' world, this rich man's world, revolved, as it does for most of us, primarily around himself and his loved ones, his family, his career, his home, things he wanted to do. As nice a guy as he may have been or may not have been, as much as Dives took care of his family or his friends with his wealth, when it all came down to it, this man, this rich man in the parable, focuses only on himself. His self, himself, is where he goes for answers. It is the source of fulfillment for him. As happy and as secure as he makes himself, is as happy and secure as he's going to be in his life. And the contrast, of course, between these two characters in the parable that Jesus tells in this series of parables and stories he tells in this late middle part of the Gospel of Luke is so obvious that it's impossible to miss. Dives is a rich man, meaning he has finances. He wears fancy purple clothes, the color of royalty. His underwear, we find out, is made out of linen, Linen underwear apparently is the underwear of the rich and famous. Uh, he's the lover of arts. He's very accomplished, as I said. He appreciates fine living. He only eats in the best restaurants. The other guy in the story, by contrast, Lazarus, is homeless. But not just homeless, he's covered in sores. But not just covered in sores, he's in such a low state every day that he longs 
for the scraps that Lazarus may toss out of his limousine window, I mean, that, that Dives may toss out of his limousine window as he goes in and out of the gate to his big house. And while he's lying there, Lazarus, begging and hoping for maybe a scrap of food from Dives, dogs come and lick his sores. Yuck. It's supposed to make you feel like yuck. This is bad. And that's the setup in this parable that Jesus tells on the heels of him sitting down and eating with tax collectors and sinners and people who are sort of, you know, not morally acceptable. And he tells a series of stories that we've been looking at in recent weeks, including uh, the parable of the prodigal son and the widow and the lost coin, all kinds of stories which sort of reverse the reality that most of us live in every day. And remember, a parable is a category of biblical literature. Uh, It is not meant to be real life. It is an imaginary, fictionalized story that is told to make we feel just one important point. And to make that point, parables usually contain or use types, right? So we have the rich man, whom we're calling Dives, and we have the poor man, the suffering man, Lazarus. Now, after the setup, what happens is they both die, and immediately Lazarus, who suffered all his life, is taken by the angels into the presence of Abraham, who's been dead for a long time, the famous paragon of faith and trust in God in the Bible. And when the rich man Dives passes away, he goes to a place called Hades, or hell. It is very warm there. It's worse than Florida in mid-August there. It is hot. I want to pause just for a moment here, put the brakes on for just a moment, so that we can dwell on the fact, once again, that these two guys are neighbors, right? They see each other every day there at that gate. And even though they're neighbors who see each other every day, whether they want to or not, there is in this life, a giant chasm or gulf between them, even before they die. Now, Lazarus probably knew who Dives was, the rich man, because his name was on the gate. But Dives didn't know Lazarus' name, I'm almost sure. He didn't see or pay any attention to Lazarus as an individual person. He just kind of looked through him as the limo passed by, another one of those unfortunate people, maybe with a little tinge of pity or disgust, Get a job, that kind of thing, you know. But either way, Dives, the rich man's too busy, too focused on, you know, what the stock market is doing or his smartphone or trying to get a reservation at a good restaurant for later that day. And while he's doing all that, thinking about what kind of food he's going to eat amongst all the choices he obviously has, Lazarus, well, Lazarus is starving. He'll take lunch any way or anywhere that he can. So there's already a gap in this story between the two, and that gap, as we find out, translates in the logic and the narrative of Jesus' parable here in the Gospel of Luke into the afterlife. Lazarus dies, angels carry him to Abraham, the great paragon of faith. And by the way, Abraham was a very rich man in this world, so it's not about money as to where you end up in the afterlife, apparently. There's something else going on here. The rich man, Dives, dies, and as I said, goes to a very hot place. 
let's try again. Florida in August, something very uncomfortable for you, like me, which I hate, hope may, will not happen tomorrow night. Me walking out of Giant Stadium after a cowboy loss is one of the worst experiences of my life. And I'm hoping to avoid it again, after quite a few times avoiding it recently, tomorrow night. Hell, what is it? It's a quick story. When I was get, uh, moving from my first church to my second church, and on the phone, back in those days, we didn't have Zoom or, or video calls. I was on the phone with a cord in my kitchen, talking to a committee of 12 people who each had a question for me. That conversation lasted over two hours. I have no idea, because I couldn't see them, as I was talking about myself and that church and my vision. I did end up being their pastor. That's the end of the story. But I was thinking, I, I was imagining them going, or just making faces and rolling their eyes as I talked on and on, kind of like you are right now. We get down to the last person, Ken, Ken Fleming, who was just like this when I met him in person and was, we were in a church together for six years. Ken was on the committee, the last person, he looked at his paper apparently and he said, I'm supposed to ask you, um, what is hell and who is Satan? That was the question for the new pastor. And I was so tired and pretty sure I wasn't going to get this job that I said, Ken, right now for me, this is hell, and you are Satan. <laughs> and I thought, there's no way I'm going to get this church. But I was their pastor for almost seven years. So. A real poignant moment in this parable is when Dives, the rich man, in Hades, where it's very warm, calls up to Abraham and Lazarus and says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus, like a servant or errand boy, I guess, down here with a little H2O on the tip of his finger so I can at least have a moment of a cool drop of water on my tongue. And Abraham responds again in this fictional parabolic story, so to speak. Child, remember how you're okay with this gap between you and that life in the, in, on earth? Well, it's going to be like that for eternity, so settle in. There's no water for you. You see, salvation in Scripture isn't really about a, a geographic place like heaven, which is up, I guess, except for if you live on a spherical orb, where is it? Right? Salvation isn't about a place that you go. Salvation is scripturally about relationship. And this parable today is about relationship. Call it heaven if you want to. Call it paradise. Call it nirvana. Our biblical tradition is that salvation is not a reward for our behavior in this life. Salvation is a mirror of our life, the way we live here on this earth. Salvation is a reflection of our commitment to relationship, to a relationship with God and, not just or, but and a relationship with with the people around us, with the world. Remember, they asked Jesus what the most important commandment is, love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the Shema, by the way, Shana Tova, to all those celebrating a new year in our Jewish, uh, our Jewish neighbors. Love God with everything you've got, and Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So the point of the parable is to invest in relationships. That's the same thing as saying, biblically, invest in salvation. Invest in a relationship that is going to last, start now 
and transcend even the boundaries of death. That is why you and I are here, to be in relationship with God, not to be solely focused on myself. What did the serpent say to Eve and Adam? You're not going to die. You will be like God. And we've been making the same mistake ever since, trying to do it all on our own, to be isolated. Even if we're surrounded with friends, it's not the same thing as giving yourself in a relationship where you have to be vulnerable, you have to take risks. That's why we're here. Salvation is investing in relationship. I want to define my term. When I say invest, I mean put what matters most to you in the service of something outside of yourself. That's what I mean by invest. And when you do that, the Bible tells us, 66 books, 80, 90 authors over thousands of years tells us, because people have experienced it, that you will know salvation. You will know what it is to be with God. Emmanuel is simply the word that means Jesus' other name, God with us, right? Jesus is telling us that salvation is a relationship with God, and it is offered to us for free. That's the amazing thing. Don't have to pay for it. Don't have to earn it. Don't have to figure it out. Don't have to be good enough to get it. Just accept it. Stay close. Hold on tight. I sometimes think that a life of faith is like that old game, Crack the Whip. You ever play that? When you're at the end and the line goes around and it's trying to, trying to shake you, you've got to hold on for dear life, literally. Two different worlds side by side, so close but yet so far, not in relationship. Dives, the rich man, and Lazarus, the poor man. We see Lazarus at our gate all the time, don't we? And not just those who suffer most profoundly, but especially them, but also people in need around us. We don't have time, you know? We, we say quick things. I'll pray for you, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers, a little bit here, maybe even a card, but not really stopping and taking the time. But if you look back in your life and think about the people who mattered, mattered to you most, I would guess, because I'm old and sort of wise and sort of some things, that the people who mattered to you most are the people who stopped what they were doing and gave themselves to you, took the time, paid attention, cared, invested in you, and we're called to do the same thing, to be saved, to be in relationship with God, not to be on our own. Friends, we're saved today to the degree that we invest in relationship, and um, I'm going to end just with a, a story that, I, that was in the Atlantic Monthly some years ago. Uh, two authors, Bobby Lowe and Matt Ridley, it's kind of an interesting modern-day illustration, I think, of this parable of the rich man Dives and the poor man Lazarus, neighbors who are so close but not in any kind of life-sustaining relationship at all. So close but yet so far. Ridley and Lowe in their article in Atlantic Monthly described, um, uh, introduced a man named John Hildebrand who lived in a place called the Artesian Valley uh, in Kansas. And he had been there and lived, grown up there since he was two years old. And he remembered why this valley, the Artesian Valley, was named like it was. He said, John Hildebrand, 
there were hundreds of natural springs in that valley. If you drilled a well for your house, the natural water pressure was enough to go through your hot water system and out the shower head. And there were marshes, he said, in Fowler, in that part of Kansas, the town they were near, in the 1920s where cattle sank to their bellies in mud. There was so much water everywhere. And the early settlers went boating down Crooked Creek in the shade of the cottonwoods, even as far as the next town 12 miles away. Today, Hildebrand says, the creek is dry, the bogs and the springs have gone, and the, and the inhabitants of Fowler have to dig deeper and deeper wells to bring up less and less water. And the reason is plain enough, when you look at from the air, with it from an airplane, the surrounding land is pockmarked with all of these um, giant disks that you've seen if you've ever driven through farmland of uh, these pivot irrigation systems, right? Agriculture, farm, irrigation, sucks up the water. And everybody in Fowler knows what's happening, but it's in nobody's interest to cut the consumption of water. No crops, no, no money, no livelihood, no town. That would just leave, so that no one ever stops consuming as much water as they can for their own crops and their own lawns, because to do that would just leave more water for somebody else. So it's about getting as much water as you can, and they can't stop it. Everything's drying up. 5,000 miles to the east, near the Spanish city of Valencia in Europe, the waters of the river Turia are shared by some 15,000 different farmers in an arrangement that dates back six centuries, maybe even longer. Each farmer, when it's their turn, takes as much water as they need from the distributory canal, and they, no, they don't waste any. Each farmer is discouraged from cheating, watering out of their turn, merely by the watchful eyes of their neighbors above and below on this canal. If they have a grievance, they can take it to the tri Tribunal de las Aguas. I know that's a nice accent, I'm sorry. The, the Water Tribunal, I think is what it is, which meets on Thursday mornings outside the door of the Cathedral of Valencia. Records dating back to the 1400s suggest that cheating in the water distribution is rare. It's a profitable region. Everybody grows at least two crops every year. Two irrigation systems, one sustainable, equitable, and long-lived, the other a doomed free-for-all. Everybody takes as much as they can before all the water runs out. Two case histories cited by political scientists who struggle to understand the persistent human failure to solve, solve the problem of common pool resources. The only way to avoid this abuse is by caring about the people next to you, to be restrained enough about self-satisfaction to have everyone be satisfied. And nobody has found a way to persuade enough of the human race to exercise this kind of love or restraint to make not just water, but so many other resources accessible to all. Again, that's the problem in this parable. That's the challenge Jesus lays before us. How do we figure this out? He says we do it by being in relationship with one another, with the world. We give our love away, and we hope and pray that we're going to get it back. But we can't get it back if we don't give it in the first place. Got to take that first step. As we close, dives is not, as I mentioned, a real name. It's simply a Latin adjective, which means rich. And that's how traditions evolved to give the rich man in this parable in the 16th chapter of Luke 
this name, Dives. But again, as I said, if wealth or money kept you from getting into heaven, then Abraham wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be the one meeting Lazarus and welcoming him and calling down to the rich man. That guy doesn't end up in torment. He doesn't end up out of relationship forever. It's simply his uncaring and different attitude, not only to Lazarus, but to everybody else in the world. His focus, his investments are solely on himself. And it's not sustainable. And it just doesn't work. Our focus is to be on one another, on a world in need, on giving the love we've already gotten so graciously from our Lord. And when we do, salvation's going to start right now. That's what we're about in this church, our little corner of it, simply to celebrate you, celebrate the brothers and sisters in Christ who come through this door or we meet in our community. Anybody who has need, we try to help them and love them because we've all been helped and loved so much. There is so much more that we are called to do and experience. Let's begin. Amen.